Is it not sweet to have your children lead you in worship? It's been a great week. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to have this place crawling with children. Uh, Well over 100 children, I believe, have been uh, in VBS this week, and uh, it's been been very good. Uh, A couple other things that have gone on this week. Uh, Some of you may know that our uh, denomination had their general assembly in Texas this week. I didn't make it. I like to go, but not this year. Um, Another large Presbyterian denomination also had their general assembly this week. So if you have heard about Presbyterians in the news, that is not us. And actually, I mean, there's been a few. There's there's often confusion, and uh, I've uh, had a somebody show up on Facebook that uh, somebody had uh, Kevin DeYoung, who is a, a large player out there these days, and the scenes texted out that NBC had wrongly reported that one of the large decisions made by the Presbyterian Church USA, which is not us, uh, was wrongly reported by NBC to have been made by our denomination, the PCA. So there was some confusion out there during some of that, and I was watching the news this morning (coughs) um, for just a few minutes as I was preparing for worship. And uh, but what caught what caught my eye was it was a discussion about the Presbyterian Church and the fact that uh, that they were divesting themselves of all connection to any support for the nation of Israel, and uh, that this was causing a hullabaloo, and uh, uh, had folks on there talking about anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Israel stance of the Presbyterian Church, and they kept saying it without qualification, just the Presbyterian Church. Uh, once again, if there our, our our general assembly passed without comment, you know. So anything that you hear in the news about the Presbyterians, uh, especially if you're visiting this morning, that's a different denomination. That is not us, and uh, those are not stances we have taken. Um, we are coming this morning to God's Word in Luke chapter five. I wanted to talk this morning about our our deepest need deepest need, unfelt needs, needs that we may or may not know that we even have. We're in Luke chapter 5, a fairly familiar story about Jesus healing a paralytic, uh, very familiar to many of us. I'm going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 17 through verse 26. Hear the word of God. On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, there were some men who were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and to lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went on up to the roof And they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. And when they, when Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them and he said, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Indeed, the Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning. We have gathered in this place to hear from you, to lift our hearts to you. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I ask that you would open every heart. That you would give us eyes to see, that you would enable us to rise up and walk. To put our faith in you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find there's an outline in your bulletin there somewhere. And the first point is on on Twinkies and broccoli. Um, This is very important. Twinkies and broccoli. That is to represent to you the idea that there are felt needs and unfelt needs. And often that our unfelt needs are often the more important thing. There's that old thing out there that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But it's not always the most important thing that needs the oil squeaky wheel. Your engine needs the oil done. Sometimes it's the unfelt need, the one that that doesn't rise to the surface in awareness. It is more important than the ones that you feel. Felt needs, and there are sometimes deeper unfelt needs. Our felt need might be hunger, and we may feel like food, and the nearest thing may be a Twinkie, and we can satisfy that need, but there is a, there's a deeper need for an un, not immediately felt need for good nutrition and long-term health, which are, that are not so felt. They don't ride on the surface. How many of us would serve our children Twinkies for breakfast on a regular basis or chocolate cake? Kids are like, what? Twinkies for breakfast? Is that what he said? And some of you remember the old Bill Cosby? <laughs> some of you got to be old enough. Dad uh, is great. He gives us chocolate cake, right, for breakfast, right, because that's what dads do. He meets the immediate felt need. The kid says, can I have chocolate cake? I'm hungry. Sure, have chocolate cake. We want to eat whatever we feel like. And sometimes in eating what we feel like and meeting felt needs and doing those things, we neglect some of the deeper unfelt needs that are even more important. As a parent, I've always been committed to try to meet those deeper, unfelt needs, whether my kids felt it was a need or not, to do what's best for them, whether they felt like it was important or not. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage, right? There's a man that comes to him with a felt need, right? He he, he lies before him with this great need, but Jesus doesn't immediately meet that need. He meets a much deeper spiritual need in this man. Does a work in his life that he didn't even know perhaps that he needed doing. Long-term nutrition and health, so to speak. So let's look at it. We Just jumping back to verse 15, setting up this passage that we're in. In verse 15 it says, But now even more the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So, you know, Jesus is... Fame and recognition is, is the words getting out. 
right, about Jesus. He's preaching the good news of God's kingdom, that it's come, and the signs of that kingdom, wonderful things that are happening. The, Jesus, the kingdom comes in the, in the king. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and there are signs and wonders that mark the coming of God's kingdom, and people are being healed of various diseases. The news is spreading, crowds are gathering, people want to see, people want to hear, people want to be healed. And so they're, they're gathering, and wherever Jesus is, crowds would start to form. And so he travels around Palestine, he's teaching in the synagogues from town to town, but you'll find him on the beach teaching, and in a boat teaching, and in the fields teaching, and, and in houses teaching, anywhere that people could find Jesus and get him in a corner. So little, verse 17, we see that he's literally packed out the house. One of those days he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. We know there were so many people there. The place was crowded that when, this, when these folks came with this paralyzed man that they couldn't get near Jesus, the house was packed out. We're told in particular that there are Jewish religious leaders present, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they've come from, from all over. It says they're from Galilee and the north, from Judea and the south, Jerusalem and the capital. You know, they've come from all over, from Knoxville, from Nashville, from Chattanooga. You know, the leaders, the religious leaders have all gathered around to hear Jesus and to see what he'll do, to see what he can do. If the rumors are true, what does he say? The power of God, we're told, is present. That Jesus heals the sick. And this is the kind of thing that indeed draws a crowd. Told in verse 18, though. Some men show up on the scene a little late. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But they couldn't find any way in because of the crowd. The place is jamming. People maybe have already sat down, or they're just so shoulder to shoulder, there's no way to get anywhere near Jesus. There's no pathway to the front. They can't get near him. But they don't give up. They get creative. Right? Don't they? They get creative. They go to the roof. In, in Palestine, a lot of the houses were built such that, you know, you had the downstairs. The upstairs was usually an open roof. And to get there, the, the stairwell was usually built on the outside of the house along the outside wall so that you would go up and onto the roof. The roof was sometimes made of different materials. could be thickly thatched and then covered with mud so it dries and you can go up there. It's an upper level or tiles. Either way, whatever it was made of, these guys, they, they can't get into Jesus through the house. They get creative and go up onto the roof over the top of where Jesus is in the house and begin to dig through the roof. Desperate times call for desperate measures. This is a determined bunch. So they're up there. Desperate to get to Jesus, to get this man within, in front of Jesus, and they will do anything. So they start tearing this hole to lower the man down. You can see the crowd. I don't know at what point they start realizing the hole appears or stuff starts dribbling down. At what point Jesus, when he's teaching, I would probably go on for quite a while before I noticed you know, something was going on. Um, you know, if he's in the zone full of the Spirit, you know, who knows when, when, he, when he realizes hole is opening up above him, the crowd sees what's going on. They lower the man down, and it says something really interesting in verse 20. It says that when he saw their faith, 
It's interesting to me. I don't know that you knew. Did you know that faith was something you could see? It's one of those intangible things, right? It's an invisible quality that somebody has. You can't always tell by some, looking at someone, at least, you know, in first encounter, whether they have faith or not. You know, it's not necessarily a visible quality. It's kind of like justice. You can say, is the judge just? And you meet the judge in the hallway and shake his hand, and you say, is he, is he just? Does he have that invisible quality? And you can't see. You can't tell by looking at him how you can tell. You can see his justice just by watching what he does, how he functions in the courtroom, how he decides what he does as he functions as a judge and he does his, his job. And so just like you can actually see justice, not so much in the man, but in what the man does. In the same way, you can see faith. These guys believed that Jesus had God's power to heal. They believed that he, that he was who he said he was, that he could do these things. And they came desperate to get close to Jesus. Because they believed faith always results in a radical, visible change of life. It's something that can be seen. To believe in Christ changes everything. You will press after him, press toward him. You will want to know him. You want to get close to him. You will want to know his touch and his, and his healing power. You, this is the way faith is. It's something that can be seen. And faith that can't be seen is probably not real. Because genuine faith is a life-transforming power. Jesus sees it. Right? He sees faith in these men, including the paralytic. They all come. I'm sure he, he, I don't know where he flagged these four guys down. Are they family members? Are they friends? Are they four guys that were walking by on the street? And he's like, pick me up, take me to Jesus. But one way or another, he found a group of guys to take him to Jesus. They stop in nothing to get in front of Jesus. Can you imagine spending your life on a mat? And there's a glimmer of hope. Just the possibility that I can get up and walk. Here's a guy, I don't think he can wait to test it out. I don't think he can wait to get in front of Jesus and to see what Jesus will do for him. There's this hope in him as they lower him down in front of Jesus. And as I said, I'm sure as they're lowering him down, Jesus stopped teaching. I know at this point even I would stop what I'm doing to watch what's happening. So all eyes are on this mat coming down. Gee, there's a hush that falls over. Everybody waiting to see what's going to happen, right? What is Jesus going to say? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be upset? Is he, what is he going to do? Are we going to see a miracle? Are we going to see him heal a guy, right? Here he comes through the roof, so a hush falls over. They're all watching Jesus. You can imagine they're waiting with bated breath. What Jesus actually does shocks everybody in the room. Literally everybody is shocked by what Jesus does. Right? We see it in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you. We, we, we live in an age where this is maybe an easier thing. You've You've studied or heard the Bible and are so familiar, you've grown up with the New Testament and this whole thing and forgiveness of sins. We almost take it for granted in Christ and what he has done. We almost take it for granted at this period of time. If you wanted forgiveness of sin, sacrifice was involved. Trip to the temple was involved. 
blood was involved. Priests were involved. There, was, there were things that had to be done and blood that had to be shed for the covering and the forgiveness of sins. And it wasn't something that just any old guy on the street or showing up in the house can do. And so Jesus, when this guy gets lowered down, they live in this culture and in this whole religious system where forgiveness of sins is a, is a desperately needed and powerful thing. God has spoken of it over millennia, and they have sought it in various ways, but it wasn't something that was given out willy-nilly. And here is Jesus. This guy is lowered in front of him. He speaks a word of forgiveness. And the moment he does, a buzz runs through the crowd. I mean, you've seen that happen. Somebody says something, and... Everybody looks at the guy next to him and says, you know, the buzz just kind of runs through the crowd. Did you hear what he just said? You can't say that. You can't do that. People start whispering. What? What did he say? The religious leadership, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, like the priesthood. These are guys, this is their purview, right? These are the temple guys and the religious leaders who have the power over the whole system where forgiveness is obtained. Through sacrifice. Right? And so these guys, they, they, they can't believe what they heard. They are absolutely scandalized. They start talking blasphemy. This guy is talking blasphemy. They don't think it's funny. They don't think this is something that can be just overlooked. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins through the shedding of blood. So the religious leadership is scandalized. They can't believe what they're hearing. They don't understand it. They've come from far and wide to hear this guy. They believe they've heard blasphemy. But they're not the only ones who are scandalized. They've got to believe the paralytic is scandalized. The guy lying on the mat is a little scandalized, or at least a little disappointed, right? Think of this guy. Imagine his disappointment, what he has gone through to get here through the roof and onto the floor in front of Jesus, because he knows that Jesus can heal. And what Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. That's like a kid on Christmas morning opening the biggest package under the tree that has his name on it, and he tears it open, and, and he gets in there, and it's a year's supply of broccoli. That's not what he was expecting. That, you know, or, you know, a... Ten years of, you know, a lifetime supply of socks. That's not what's supposed to be in the box. Right? Thanks a lot, Jesus. The blind see, the, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, and here I am before you. I'm forgiven? Uh, excuse me, Jesus. I think there's been a wee misunderstanding. <laughs> I'm here for the daily special. Right? I'm here for the power of God was present to heal business, right? I'm here for the ability to get up and walk. So do you think that maybe, I mean, I don't know. I can imagine he is a little disappointed with Jesus. What is going on? Why does Jesus disappoint this man? Why does he scandalize the crowd? It's a matter of Twinkies and broccoli. Right In Jesus' mind, he has just given this man the greatest of all possible gifts in forgiveness. He's seeing the big picture. Jesus is like a parent who knows the value of broccoli over a Twinkie. 
He's not minimizing the man's suffering to put it in that category. I mean, Jesus, of all people, knows and understands and sympathizes with suffering, a man of sorrows, right? Jesus understands, and he's not minimizing it. He's not ignoring it. He's just looking at the bigger picture, and he's saying the needs of the body, the needs of this man's body are small in comparison with the needs of his soul. And he goes to the soul first. Matthew 16, 26 in your bulletin under the third point. I'm already at the third point. Under the third point, he says, Matthew 16, Jesus says in another place, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange in return for his soul? Right, and so Jesus reaches for humanity's deepest and greatest need in the soul. In other words, if Jesus healed this man's body, and let's say he went beyond that. He healed the man's body so he can walk, but not only that, he made him popular and good looking. Right? And he also made him a millionaire and gave him a big house and a nice car and a yacht. And Jesus just, in a sense, gave him the whole world, not just the ability to get up, but did not forgive his sins. Be like putting a Band-Aid on a festering cancer. You gave him a Band-Aid, this world's goods. But he has a terminal spiritual condition that went unaddressed. What Jesus offered this man was what the Bible calls salvation. What he offered him was a life that was made right with God. A life that was accepted by God because his sins had been forgiven. He addresses the need of his eternal soul in his relationship with the God who is and the God who he will stand before. See, the deepest human need, the deepest need a human being has is to be freed from our guilt before God. Right? The Bible says it in so many ways. And you know, sometimes the world out there, <clears throat> you ask, you say something about salvation or, you know, have you been saved? You know, this Bible language that has lost meaning for people. And sometimes they'll say, saved from what? And you have to have the whole Bible per- perspective, which I believe is God's perspective. Which is there is a desperate need to be saved from something. It's called from our sin. Well, let me just, okay, I put a, a series of Bible verses in, in there under the third point. I'm going to run through them and just kind of touch you know, in summary fashion, what the Bible says about it, there in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everyone has. Each one of us has. And, and when the Bible talks about sin like that, it's not just the really bad things that we do. It's not just the, the big ones over here the, that we think of. He's saying it is an attitude of rebellion. It's a life that ignores Right, a life of selfishness, a life lived for self, a life that doesn't have reference to the God who is. And so Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. Right, sin is a deadly disease, more deadly than the problem that this man had physically. It was a deadly disease, and when Jesus addresses it, that is the greatest act of mercy that he could have shown this man. Right? Sin is a deadly disease with an eternally terminal condition. 
And so in John 8, 24, also there in your bulletin, Jesus at one point says, unless you believe who I, that I am who I say that I am, basically for you, unless you believe that I am he, the Messiah, the Savior, unless you believe in me, he says you will die in your sins. And Jesus is mine. There is nothing worse that can happen to a human being than to die in your sins. There's nothing worse that can happen to a human being, not even being paralyzed, not even having any physical illness, terminal or or debilitating or whatever it is. There's nothing worse that can happen to a human being, and Jesus is mine, than to die in your sins. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 12.14 is true. It's there in your bulletin. It says, God will bring every deed into judgment. And with every secret thing, whether good or evil, he says, one day each of us will stand before God. And he says, on that day, we do not want to be found guilty. We do not want to be found in our sins. And so Jesus' questions echo in this place. You know, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world? But he loses his very soul. Right on that day, that That day when we stand before him, he says, you would trade it all back in. You would give it all back if you could. If you could just have one thing, one thing, the forgiveness of my sins, right, which Jesus gave away so freely to this guy. The forgiveness of my sins, right, because the old adage goes, there are no U-Hauls on the back of a hearse. You can't take it with you. Whatever it is you accumulated, whatever it was of this world, the treasures and the pleasures that you amassed in this time, he says, you can't take it with you. And on that day, in fact, you would wish that you could trade it all back in because on that day, you'll want one thing. To be forgiven of your sins, to be found not guilty in the presence of God. This man came for the healing of his body. But Jesus addresses his deepest spiritual, unfelt need. The need of his soul. See, the dead bolt that locks the door of eternal life, that bars the door of heaven, is sin. And the forgiveness of sins is the key that opens the door to an eternity. And so the question that then should weigh on us, the unfelt need that a lot of folks don't have saved from what, is still the most important question, which is simply that. How can my sins be forgiven? Right? How, wh- who can forgive my sins? And that's the question that arises in this passage, doesn't it? That's the question that gets thrown around as Jesus does this, as he so freely and so graciously and so easily pronounces The forgiveness of sins. And their question is this. Who is this guy? Who can forgive sins? But only God. Only God. There's immediate confusion among the leadership. Who does this guy think he is? That's what that question sounds like to me. Who who is this guy that speaks blasphemies? Who does this guy think he is? Taking upon himself the prerogatives of God. Doing what only God. God can do. Who is this guy? 
Jesus asks them a couple of questions in return, and we get them in verses 22 and 23, don't we? Jesus perceived their thoughts. He understands that they're unhappy with him. He understands they doubt him. They understand that they don't uh, know who he is and why he is able to do what he does. He perceives their doubt, and he asks them the first question, why do you question in your hearts? Sounds a little bit to me something like, what's your problem? And he follows it up in verse 23. Let me ask you another question. Which is easier? Is it easier to say that your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Right? Which is easier? Now, the harder task of the two is the forgiving of sins. That's the harder task, right? To, to forgive and heal a person's soul is a deeper God-like action that is in some ways more difficult than the healing of the body. So it is the more difficult task, but which is easier to say? That's a trickier question. It's easier to say the first one, isn't it? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier to say? If I were to say that this morning to any of you, pull you aside and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say because it's not verifiable. Right? It's, the, the result's not immediately visible. You don't know whether it's done or whether it's not done in the saying of it. On the other hand, it's harder to say get up and walk because the results are going to be immediately verifiable. Either he gets up and walks or he doesn't. So it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk. So follow Jesus' logic in verse 24. He says, but so that you will know that the Son of Man, that is me, the Messiah, has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Right? So that you know that I have power to do what you cannot see, what is invisible to the eye. I'm going to do what you can see. So that you will know that I have a power and authority over the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to show you power and authority over the healing of the physical body. Because among the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at this time too, there's another thing that only God has the power to do, and that's to heal. Right? So if only God can heal and only God can forgive sins, I'm going to do the one that you can see that is the power of God, the healing of the body, so that you will believe that I can do the one that you can't see. That you will not doubt who I am and what I have been given the authority to do by God himself. He says, do not doubt my power to forgive sins. And I will show you God's power to do all things. Jesus came to meet our deepest need. He came to set us free from the guilt of our sins. To set the captives free. To save us from the wages of sin by paying our debt on the cross. There under the last point in your bulletin in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes and he says that God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He provided that sacrifice that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were so concerned about, the forgiveness of sins. Only God can do that and he's given us a system. Right, and then Jesus comes and he fulfills all of that in himself. That God shows his love that while we his love that while we were still sinners and in need of saving, Jesus dies for us. And since therefore we've now been justified, made acceptable by his blood, how much more will we be saved 
by Him from the wrath of God. While we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Right? The good news is that Jesus is able to reconcile us to God. Jesus showed up on the earth and He did a lot of miracles and signs and wonders and people get caught up in whether He can do those or not. And the real question is, you know, whether even miracles can be done. We were having that discussion in Sunday school class over secularism and you know, one of the tenets of secularism is that they don't believe in the supernatural. You know, healings can't happen. You know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a world where, you know, we're in a closed system and God is not involved. And I can understand the, the struggle with this idea that someone can heal unless that someone, like Jesus, is who he said he was. Right? The Son of God. Right? God come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. If Jesus is who he said he was, then, then doing all the things he did is not only not a problem, it would be expected. Right? It, would be, it would be what you would expect to see from God who came to do for us and to do something for us, to show his power in one way so that we would understand our need for him as a savior. Right? The good news is Jesus is able to reconcile us to God, to save us. And if we believe that he is who he says he is, right? He says, if you believe that I am he, you will not die in your sins. He will pronounce over you as he pronounced over this man. Man, woman, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You stand before God declared not guilty. At that moment, you can pass from death unto life. You pass from guilty unto innocent. You pass from being an outcast to being a child to being embraced by God. If we believe who he says he is, if we trust him, the deadbolt on the door to heaven is, is broken open through trust in Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The greatest mistake that people make is to live for their felt needs, right? to live under the felt needs of this world for the treasure and the pleasure of this life, but to neglect the deeper needs of the soul before God, the need to be right with Him, the need for forgiveness, the need to have the burden of guilt removed, what will it profit a man? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose a soul? Jesus comes to address the soul. Right? He comes to speak underneath to your deepest need before your God. And he calls us to himself. My friend, will you end your rebellion? Will you bow your knee to King Jesus and acknowledge that he is who he said he was? He can do what he said he could do, which is to bear our own sin in his body on the cross, that he would bear it away and to set us free from its guilt, that he would be a savior to us, someone who would forgive our sins and usher us into God's presence, not guilty and accepted. Will you ask Him to be your Savior? Will you ask Him to forgive your sins? Will you ask Him to make you right with your God? What is keeping you from doing that right now? If the answer is nothing, I would invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning and by your word you make us aware, you make us keenly aware of the deeper needs of our souls. 
by your word, you awaken us to the fact that there is a deadbolt on the door of heaven that must be loosed. Father, we know our sins that is ever before us. We know ourselves well. But you know us even better than we know ourselves. And this morning we would confess our need for Jesus Christ. We would invite you, Jesus, to come near. We would bow our need to you as our king. We would invite you to save us from our sins. We put our trust in you that what you did on the cross, you did for me. That the sin you bore in your own body on the cross was mine. The forgiveness that you win there. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Speak these words over my soul. Come into my life as my Savior and my King that I might know you and love you and follow you all my days. These things we ask and pray in the strong name of Jesus.